0: Welcome to the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Today it is April 23rd. Joe Healy is joining me as always here and we are going to today be exploring another one of our classic college baseball games that we are re-watching um, in this time of uh, uh, college baseball spring. Joe has us going back into the archives and, and finding some Great games to rewatch, or in many cases, watch for the first time for us. And then we uh, bring on a guest who was a participant in that game to talk about them, to talk about the game and, and their team with us. Today, we are watching the 1992 College World Series championship game between Pepperdine and Cal State Fullerton. And Steve Rodriguez, who was an All-American infielder for the, the Waves that year, will join us Rodriguez is now, of course, the head coach at Baylor after a uh, long stint as the head coach at his alma mater. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. But before we get to it, Joe, uh, how are you uh, How are you doing on this uh, kind of cloudy and, and a little dreary April afternoon?
2: Yeah, it is. Looking out the windows now, it kind of is alternating between just kind of the bright white cloud cover and kind of darker, more ominous cloud cover. I was... Able to get my uh, daily walk in. I over around lunchtime. I go and uh, fun fact: I actually go walk laps like around the Baseball America office because I know nobody's going to be there. It's kind of an empty parking lot. So well, except
0: than, for the time that Josh ran into you there, that did happen. Yes, <laughs> Joe uh, I didn't even seen, know that I knew that. But I have.
2: That's true. You guys have been <laughs> watching me a little closer than I realize. Um, Yeah. So I guess if any college baseball fans are out there in the triangle area and you want to cost me while I'm on my, actually don't do that. Just don't do that. Uh, (laughs) We're doing the social distancing thing, but anyway, long story short, I got my walk in today. I was able to dodge the raindrops to get that in. I've been using that as a personal walking track, which has been kind of nice. I'm also heartened by the way, on a different note, I thought about this as we we've been using zoom for these podcasts. We're getting these coaches on and using zoom and I am heartened that. Apparently we are better with technology than, NFL general managers um, and people that are putting on the NFL draft. There's been a lot of hand wringing about whether or not that technology is going to work for the for the NFL draft. And so I guess what I've learned here is that Teddy and I should be running NFL franchises. I mean that's really my only takeaway from from the news of the last week or so. So congratulations, Teddy, on uh, being qualified to do so.
0: Yes. Yeah, so you know we're recording this on Thursday and we won't release this episode until Friday. And so I really don't want to say something that I'm just going to regret in, you know, 15, 16 hours. But I do not understand what the NFL's issue is, that they're struggling so hard in the week leading up to the draft to, to pull this draft off online. MLB's draft is entirely remote, literally every single year. They've been doing it that way for as far as I know, ever. Um, They don't have problems. I don't understand what is happening. And, like, I do get some of this is probably a bandwidth issue because, you know, it's different to say that no one is in one central place. It's another thing to say, like, that your scouts and your GM and your owner and everyone has to have their internet functioning perfectly. But, like, I really don't get it. I, I, I don't understand what's happening, and uh, I would say I would find out tonight uh, when we watch the draft, but I won't watch the draft, so I won't find out, and uh, please, no one tell me. I, it's okay. So going from the, the football-heavy talk that we started with, Joe, let's go to two schools that don't play football anymore, uh, Pepperdine and Cal State Fullerton. They met in the 1992 College World Series Final, Uh, Also Cal final, the second one of these games we've done, I don't know uh, if if I didn't know better, I'd say Kyle was picking these games. Our our colleague Kyle Glazer from SoCal uh, noted uh, Southern California baseball enthusiast, Kyle Glazer. Uh, But no, it is Joe that that picks these games for us. And we're uh, going to go back to Omaha in 1992, Pepperdine, Cal State Fullerton. uh, And we are we're going to see a game or we watched a game rather that, you know, is a uh, very pitching heavy, uh, you know, a nice clean game. Uh, we haven't had that all the time when we've been rewatching these games, this one, uh, it helped that the wind was blowing in at Rosenblatt, but it was uh it was more of a pitching and defense kind of game with some uh, you know, nice big moments, some kind of, Key moments in, in the framework of, or moments that you see replayed in the framework of college World Series history, and this Pepperdine team certainly is one of the the teams that uh, gets looked back on a lot uh, as uh, as a breakthrough team and and for what it represented at, at the time and and you know the the players that were involved and um, you know I think beating Fullerton had had a lot to do with that. But that's enough of an intro. Let's get to. Steve Rodriguez, who played for that Pepperdine team and now is coaching at Baylor. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we are delighted to be joined by Steve Rodriguez, current Baylor head coach and former Pepperdine All-American. Uh, and we are going to be talking about that 1992 championship game. But before we get to it, Coach, uh, just it's uh, it's been a strange time in, in the world and, and in college sports and baseball specifically. But how are you? Uh, how are you managing this uh, baseball this spring, <laughs> uh,
1: or the lack thereof? Right. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know the biggest thing is, uh, you know, I wish everybody could say, okay, this is how it's supposed to be handled, but we're we're in such a very unique time where it, obviously there's things that are unprecedented. We don't have a playbook for this, and you know when we FaceTime our players and we we Zoom call them and uh, just to kind of, I want the thing is that, you know, we'll text and stuff like that, but I tell them, I like, go, I want to see your face, you know, just like, uh, like all of us other, we like to communicate with people just by talking to them and, and seeing them. And I just want to make sure they're doing okay. Um, understanding that there are certain restrictions that the NCAA gives us and the things that we can and can't do. And, and so we're obviously abiding by that. But the biggest thing for me is I just want to see them and make sure they're doing okay. And, uh, that they're healthy, that they're, you know, they're taking care of business in the classroom the way they're supposed to, or in the virtual classroom. Um, but you know, I think for our coaches, it's just really difficult because, you know, our job is to coach. I don't know if I've ever spent a weekend at home in March or April and you know, you almost feel a little lost at times. I think at the beginning for a lot of coaches, it was great to be able to connect with their families. And, um, I just remember as a professional player, uh, when I retired, um, getting ready for spring training, your body starts to, your, the clock starts to adjust and the anticipation starts to adjust. And then next thing you know, when you're not going to spring training or you've kind of been retired or released or whatever it is, then all of a sudden you, you start to kind of go, okay, there's something missing here. And my body's not used to this. And and so we're all just trying to figure out the best way we can.
0: Yeah. That's, uh, that's certainly the the case here on our end. And, and I know for for everyone around the, around the country as well, well, we're we'll coping a little bit by watching old baseball games. So let's get to this uh, 1992 classic here. Um, and to set the stage, it was, it was Pepperdine and Fullerton in the final. You guys had won the West Coast Conference. You got seated third in the West Regional. Uh, but you got through that pretty handily. And then once you got to Omaha, you didn't give up a run in the first two games. Uh, then you beat Texas to advance to the final. At that time, I mean, you guys had only lost one game in the postseason. You guys must have been playing with a whole lot of confidence going into that final against Fullerton.
1: You know what's interesting about that? um, And I I get these questions, I don't want to say quite a bit, but whenever somebody talks about uh, back in 1992 during this time, uh, during postseason, how different it was, I, I remind them, I go, we didn't have the internet and we didn't have ways of tracking other teams you know there was not a lot of games like if your game was on tv it was like a really big deal whether it was like you know sports west or something like that like if you had a game on tv it was it was a really big deal and so uh we didn't you know we had baseball america you know and that came out like once a month and then the collegiate uh, collegiate baseball which you know was you know we we got that every other month or something like that and so by the time you had a chance to see everything that you wanted to see it was already a month late and so you just really had no idea about how good you were, how – like what you were getting yourself into when you went to a regional, you know, scouting reports and all those different things. Like you you can't really watch a lot, so you just really took care of yourself. And, you know, once the game started, you you played how you were supposed to play.
2: Give us a sense of of Fullerton's place at this time out, particularly within the frame of California, but just in general in college baseball. Augie at this point was a big-name coach. He had recently returned from a few years he'd spent at at Illinois – um, they would won some national titles. I'm just curious how large they loomed as a program at this particular time on the West coast.
1: Well, it was just interesting because I'll, I'll say they're, they're a big program, but it's not like SC or UCLA where the school itself, you know, uh, is, is just, it's a very prominent uh, school on the West coast. Uh, but for like us and Fullerton, we were kind of smaller schools in regards to a lot of things like no football programs and stuff like that. But having to, having played them throughout the year, and then having to, to kind of match up with them in the national championship game was pretty fun just because we knew a lot of the players, obviously, from playing against them already. But uh, it was just really fun to be able to, to kind of keep that camaraderie and that banter going all the way to that national championship game.
0: So then you guys get started out there, and you guys got off to a really quick start. Fullerton had just played the night before in what the broadcast tells us, less than optimal weather conditions. You were a little bit more rested. To get that 2 nothing lead in the first inning, just how important was that, and, and, and how much boost did that give you guys the rest of the way?
1: <laughs> I'll tell you what. Uh, less than optimal conditions is a really funny way to put it. Um, it was pouring. I mean, it was <laughs> an outright downpour, and this is when – uh, Turfus became kind of a really big deal. Um, uh, they, they started using that and they started putting that all over the field and everybody was like, what, what are they putting on there? And it was this drying agent that we had kind of heard about, but not a lot of us could really afford. So we didn't really know much about it. Um, you know, we had diamond dry, which was like the powder like substance, but this was like the Turfus, where it's absorbing all this stuff. And they, and it, they just poured bags upon bags upon bags on there. And it just did an unbelievable job, but it was absolutely pouring, uh during that night game and all of us I just remember going oh my gosh I am so glad we're not playing in that right now
2: and there's a play in the fourth inning specifically that I think maybe would get lost um, you know otherwise but Scott Vollmer makes a play your catcher where he smothers a ball Uh, Jeremy Carr is trying to take third base for Fullerton at the time Fullerton has guys on first and second with nobody out he throws out Carr trying to get to third phil nevin ends up hitting a single up the middle that would have scored a run and of course not to jump too far ahead but you guys end up winning by one run right. how big how big of a a uh, piece of this puzzle was a guy like scott volmer and that play within the confines of a game that like i said might get lost in the grand scheme of things
1: all of those little things like that during that game were huge you know if scotty doesn't come up and and pick the ball up clean or doesn't make the, the throw that he does and uh you know, he's safe now, all of a sudden, you know, Phil Nevin's up with, you know, guys on, what is it? First or second and third and, you know, and has a chance to kind of do some damage. And, you know, those are the things that I think, you know, everybody sees certain plays and certain hits and home runs, but those are the small things in games. And I even express that to our guys. Um, Those are the little things that you look back and you go, if that would have gone this way or uh, the ability to make those small plays really allows a team to win a game like that. It really does.
2: I want to ask you another question about Scott Vollmer too. I read an LA Times article in doing research for, for this interview about how he would bring a cooler to practice because he was trying to put on weight and he was worried about being a little bit skinny for the catcher position. Can you confirm this, uh, the presence of Scott Vollmer carrying a uh, cooler to practice just to, to be constantly eating and drinking
1: things? Well, the funny thing about that is I just talked to Scott yesterday. Um, so we, we have a, a great relationship and we stay in communication quite a bit. And uh, I, I can confirm, he was doing everything he could to put weight on. And even to today, he he still doesn't have it on. You know, he, he's just that guy. Um, but he would always do everything he could. He constantly had food with him, trying to gain weight. Uh, but he was just one of those guys, he, he just couldn't do it. I know, rough, rough <laughs> for some people, that's a really rough thing, isn't it? If we could all be so fortunate, I suppose. Yes, exactly. <laughs>
0: In uh, in the fifth inning there, and Eric Ekdahl, uh hits a home run. He hadn't hit one all season long. What were you guys thinking from the bench as you're watching that ball go out uh, to left field?
1: You know what's? Yeah, he didn't hit a home run all year. And I'm just going to let you know, the wind was blowing in at a pretty good clip from left field. And so when he hit it, I mean, he absolutely smashed that ball. Um, and he hit it, and all of us were like, oh, my gosh, that's way out. And then all of a sudden you saw the ball start to die because of that wind. And we're like, oh, my gosh, it, it's not going to get out. And I think it may have landed like in, you know, the second row or something. Or it barely got out. And we were just like, oh, my gosh. And, and even he, I think going around second base, he was kind of looking like, hey, what happened? Did it go out? Did it not go out? And he was trying to figure out, do I stop here? Am I out? Um, but like when it went out and we knew he hit it, it was, it was a great uplifting thing for our team just because what a great opportunity to hit your first home run of the year.
2: In the middle of the fifth inning, Leslie Visser, the, the sideline reporter on the CBS broadcast, did a little bit on you about your superstitions you had going on at the time. Can you recall all the superstitions you kind of had going at that time? I'm curious if you're able to, to recount them all these years later.
1: You know, I think I'm pretty sure I had the same undershirt. Um, there are certain things that, you know, I, I did. I'm trying to remember, like, there were certain ways I put on my batting gloves. There were certain ways I, I just – I would go onto the field, touch a base – You know, like there was certain things I did. And obviously, going through my professional career, those those uh, superstitions changed a little bit. Um, But I could not recall every single one of them. But there was times where I would, if I had a piece of gum in my mouth, I didn't get a hit. I'd spit it out, put another one in. I mean, there was all sorts of things I would do to to try to give myself as much luck as possible. Do you guys know what they are? Cause I would love to hear them. I mean, that was
2: the, the you covered the big ones there. They, they mentioned specifically that the having to touch the base and jump over the line coming on and off. And one of the announcers mentioned a point where they watched you come off the field and you had not done your routine. So you got
1: forgot to do it. And I had to go back and touch. Yeah. The base. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that. <laughs> I do remember that. That's Yeah, you,
2: you, you covered most of them there. I was actually going to ask if you
1: still have that undershirt. Um, thankfully no and i'm sure <laughs> very happy that that's not the case i think when i left college that that left as well
0: <laughs> yeah they uh they made kind of a big deal out of it and i like i'm watching it and they're they're talking about it and i was like i don't know it seems like these aren't outlandish but i guess when you combine them all together maybe maybe they seemed a little bit uh a little bit more out there
1: you know the funny thing about superstitions or i just call them routines um, is that it? Just gives you a sense of comfort, you know. That's all it is. Is just that you're doing the same thing over and over again, and uh, you're just allowing yourself to to kind of remove some possible things that might be going on in your head that uh, can give you a negative thought. So as long as you feel like you're doing consistently the same things over and over again, that's giving you success, you know. And I tell people like, if you're doing it and you're having success, then keep doing it. I go, that's that's part of the success is the routine of uh, of how you're going about your day and how you're playing. Now you got to understand like if just because things don't go right, doesn't mean that the routine has to change and, and all that other stuff. But, um, but I always think it's good to kind of create some kind of routine for yourself that uh, takes your brain out of it a little bit.
0: Pat Ahern was so good for you guys that day. <laughs> what, uh, what do you remember was working for him? What, what do you remember just about playing behind
1: him uh, on that day? Um. He was one of the most interesting guys to play behind just because uh obviously the Oral Hershiser, uh delivery and the mannerisms were to a T. I mean, it was – he would sit there and practice that over and over and over again, and he was really, really good at it. But I've never seen a guy uh, be able to handle like an 84 to 88-mile-an-hour fastball with as much sink – as he had going on both sides of the plate, uh, we knew that he was going to throw a bunch of strikes. We knew we were going to get a bunch of ground balls. Uh, but when he was starting to strike a lot of guys out, we knew we had a chance to be pretty good. You make a
2: play. Obviously, that this is a, a big highlight in this game is you make a diving play in the eighth inning. Uh, you know, teams in a little bit of a jam. It looks like Fullerton is in the process of putting together um, some sort of rally. They get a run, but you end up. Uh, making what I guess can be described as a game-saving play on a dive to your left. What do you, how vivid do you remember that play specifically? And, and um, I'm curious, you know, how well you can remember kind of exactly what you were thinking and going through on that play.
1: I, I can remember like it was yesterday. Um, I remember going to my left, uh, diving for the ball. I think it was like about a two to three steps and then a dive. Uh, I remember being in the dirt completely. I didn't even get to the grass. Uh, I, I do remember kind of like all that, that turf is. Uh, was on there at the time and I remember it was it was pretty thick and I I hit a lot of it and it came flying up Uh, but I'll tell you what it was one of the greatest things that I felt was when I turned to throw to first base I could see our dugout start to come out as I was getting ready to throw and that for me was like one of those oh my gosh that's really happening you know because as you're going through it you're not thinking that this is a great play this is going to be a game thing you know you're just trying to make the play and so, but when I turned to throw it and all of a sudden I see our dugout kind of erupting out of the dugout onto the field, that's when I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is a really big deal. And then I throw the ball to first base and Dan Melendez, our first baseman, gives me like a fist pump. And first of all, that's like the most emotion you ever see out of him. He is very stoic, does not show a lot of emotion. And when he did that, I was like, holy smokes, like we got a chance to win this thing right now course, I
2: imagine that moment was only eclipsed for you by squeezing the final out on a pop-up in, in shallow right. Where does that rank for you just in terms of the memories you've made on a baseball field?
1: <laughs> you know what was interesting about that play? First of all, it ranks unbelievably high because you almost go numb knowing that that that's, has the opportunity to be the last out. And it felt like I ran about 80 yards going after that ball and I kept going out after it. And then I backpedal a little bit and then I kept waiting for my right fielder, Matt McElreath to call it all. I, I'm waiting for him to call me off and he, he doesn't say anything. And then all of a sudden I just wave my arms and go, Hey, I got it. And, and I just remember like staring up at the sky for a long time. It felt like in my feet, I just could not stay still just waiting for that thing to come down. And then I was just hoping, okay, just make sure you catch this thing. Um, so I would use two hands to catch it and I got it and I was just like, oh my gosh. And the funny thing is that that ball stayed in my glove and never came out until we got back to California.
0: Did you then end up at the bottom of the dog pile? Obviously it's hard to see on the broadcast what happens after that. Uh, but what, what about the dog pile?
1: I was somewhere kind of in the middle. I don't want to say I was on the bottom because obviously I was way out in the outfield and I was kind of running in with the outfielders. So there was a lot of stuff happening uh, before I actually got there. So I remember kind of hitting and kind of bouncing off and then trying to jump back on it at at some point.
0: (laughs) Well, so one of the strange things about that world series is that that's one of the times where the the Player of the uh, tournament, the most outstanding player. There it is. Uh, was a player on the losing team in the championship game. It was. It went to Phil Nevin, right. uh, who had an incredible season. He was the player of the year that year. But uh, you know, a lot of times, maybe you would have wanted, or, or or someone, at least some wave, would have wanted. And instead, it was it was Phil Nevin. What did you think in the moment when when that got announced?
1: In the moment, I I to be honest, I won a national championship. <laughs> that's all. I, I was not concerned about who won, you know, afterwards, I had a lot of people say I could, I can't believe they gave it to somebody else, but he had an unbelievable world series. You know, let's be honest. I, I had a couple like good moments. Uh, he had an amazing world series. And the funny thing is Phil and I, I'm, I'm coaching Phil's son on our team right now. And uh, you know, we, we have kind of flashbacks and he tells people, he's like, you know what? It's really hard to put um, this, you know, player of the World Series trophy on my finger. He's like, it's great to have, but he's like, I'd rather have a national championship bring more than this trophy. Uh, but when you're a player that goes 1-1 in the draft, uh, and he has the World Series he does, I mean, I'm not foolish enough to think that, like, oh, my gosh, we won. I deserve it. Uh, he he did. He had an unbelievable World Series, and I, I thought he deserved it. It's just that simple. Um, but I, 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 those are things I never look at and go, I can't believe I didn't get that. But all I do know is that we had a chance to win a national championship, and we did.
0: What, what's the um, relationship of this team? Like you, you mentioned, you, you keep in touch with some of them. Mark Wasikowski is, of course, in the coaching profession as well. How tight-knit is this, uh, is this group still?
1: It's pretty impressive. Um, you know, Derek Wallace is a fireman in, in Florida. Dan Melendez is working in California. Scott Womer is a teacher in Southern California. Waz is obviously up in, uh, up in Oregon. You know, we, Jerry Ashoff, a left-handed pitcher for us, owns a, b- a bunch of restaurants in LA. You know, we, we actually stay in, in pretty good contact um, with, uh, with each other. You know, whether it's through Facebook, text message, whatever it is, when something's going on, uh, with one of us, we don't have a problem with reaching out to just kind of remind people, hey, well, here's what something that's going on. We need to kind of keep this in our prayers or something like that. So, uh, but it's, I'll tell you what, it, you know, of, of the years, you know, the, the six, seven years I played professionally, there's nothing that that compares to the relationships that I have when I was in college. There's nothing that does it.
2: I wanted to ask you a little bit about Andy Lopez. And he's a coach that, that I think, this is just me saying, I, I think he's one of the more underrated coaches in the game when you consider that went to Omaha with three programs, won a national title at two programs. Um, what did you pick up from him and how can you see his influence in your coaching career today?
1: You know, it's the biggest thing is that he, he's an amazing Christian man uh, brought me to my faith, uh, but was unbelievably aggressive in, in how he coached. And I mean that in just that he wasn't uh a big, you know, statistician like people are now. He wasn't all into technique and mechanics so much. It's just he wanted to push you to be the absolute best player you could be, just on your own ability. And so he would just really have a way, and you know, and and obviously times have changed. You know, there's certain things that we can't do now as coaches that you know a lot of coaches got away with back in the day. Um, but he just had an amazing way of motivating you to be the best you can be because that's what you're supposed to do. And he always made you feel like if you weren't doing that then then you were kind of short-sighting yourself and the team and and I I really can't thank him enough for everything that he did for all of those guys and I think just like every coach some coach players are going to love him and some are not going to like him just because of, you know, they don't like how he talked or whatever it was but but when you have somebody who wants you to be the absolute best you can be and is going to push you to do that. Um, you know, he might say some things that might be, I don't want to say hurtful, but motivating. Um, that's all, that's all you're asking for from people is they want you to be the best you can be, um, when you have your leaders. And, and he did just that. The fact that he had the success that he has had, uh, in all the different programs is not a surprise at all. He just did a phenomenal job when he had kids pushing them to, to, to just be really, really good and to play really hard. And that was just as, as easy as I can make it.
0: You went back to Pepperdine once your playing career ended and, and you started your coaching career there. Uh, so obviously you spent a lot of time around that, that campus over mm-hmm. the course of your life. What does that place mean to you? And uh, just did, did the view at that field ever, do you ever grow numb to it? Or, or is it <laughs> always like, oh, hey, there's the ocean?
1: You know, it's, it is pretty awesome. There were times where you, you after practice or whatever it is, and, um, you know, you're cleaning up dragging or water in the field and you, you kind of sit there and you go, Oh man, this, this does not suck. It, it's pretty nice. And you're overlooking the ocean and just really, uh, taking it in the fact that it's, you know, anywhere from 60 to 70 degrees year round. And, you know, you, you know, I met my wife there. I mean, we had an opportunity to coach there for a long time and, Um, It is. It's a special place for us um, in regards to like where we met and stuff like that in regards to our family. Um, You know, we had a lot of success there on the baseball field, uh, but the view, it it just doesn't get old. And I remember when we went out to the regional last year at UCLA here with Baylor. we went over to Pepperdine and practiced and our guys were looking at me like, this is where you were working. I was like, yeah, this is it. And uh, they're like, wow, what in the world were you thinking? And I was just like, well, you gotta understand we're, we're, we're at a pretty good spot where we are too. And they're like, no, absolutely. But coach this is pretty nice. I was like, yeah, it is. I got it. So, but it was fun just to be able to take them back and kind of see kind of my old stomping grounds. It was fun to be able to do that with them.
2: So I was looking through your bio on, on the Baylor website today, and I found a little nugget towards the bottom that I wanted to ask you about, and that's that you won a baseball coaches cooking competition <laughs> in 2010 and 2011 at the ESPN zone in Anaheim. I would love to know what you cooked for that competition, and what this was all about.
1: Okay, so if you want to, that actually happened for three straight years, okay? And I am a big believer that I won the first year. Um, but I did not get, so if you want to talk about trophies that I'm actually upset that I didn't win, (laughs) that is the one. Um, but, uh, they, at the ESPN zone, um, at Disneyland, they had this thing where, um, there was a, you know, all the Southern California coaches would go there and, uh, we would, they, it, it was just different. You had to mimic what the chef made one time and then you had to create your own pasta. Um, so that was one, that was the one I actually did not win. Uh, but then there was another one where, um, it was kind of like, Hey, you have to make up your own sliders. And so they, uh, they give you all the ingredients and you have to kind of make it up as you go. And, and so there was a a couple different things, but I I made a, a, a pasta dish that was actually really impressive. And then, um, I made some, some sliders that, that were actually really, really good. And, uh, the funny thing about it is when I played professionally, I taught myself, a couple different things during the off season. I never wanted to sit and just do nothing. Cause there's only so many swings you can take. There's only so many ground balls, There's only so much you can work out. And so I wanted to just be productive with my time. And so one off season, I taught myself how to cook. So I watched a bunch of cooking shows and I just learned a bunch of different things. And I taught myself how to make a pasta, I taught myself how to make some meat and some uh, some gumbo and, and some other things. And trust me, I made some really, really bad dishes where we were calling pizza uh, to be delivered often. My wife was like, "Oh, I cannot eat this," but, um, but I, I tell our guys, I said, "You need to learn how to cook because it's something that you'll always be able to use. Um, it's something that you can always be creative with." And. Uh, it's always something that can you can really pass some time with it, and so I did that one one off season. I literally just every meal I wanted to learn how to cook and create something different and different flavors, and you know what did I like? What I you know what was really difficult and all these different things. And you know one year I became a personal trainer. One year I got into yoga. You know one year I, I really got into running and diets. And so there was all sorts of different things that I would kind of get into uh, for those five months in the off season while I was while I was getting ready for pro Bowl.
0: I love that and the uh the cooking skills are probably coming in very handy in in our current situation
1: <laughs> very handy and what's funny if you guys I'm uh my wife actually said this and one of my players because I usually make gumbo for our players like every year I bring them all over to the house and I spend all day just making you know probably eight pots of gumbo for them all to come and enjoy um and so She said, what you should do is like send out all that, uh, all the ingredients that all the players need and send it to them. And then just do like an Instagram live and just go ahead and record it and have everybody like kind of follow through and see what it does and see what it looks like. And, and I was like, wow, that's actually pretty interesting because I've had some players literally ask me, Hey coach, can you send me all the ingredients? for your gumbo recipe. And then, you know, can you call me and walk me through it? And I'm like, absolutely. You know, and so those are just kind of fun things that I get to do with these guys that, you know, typically I probably wouldn't be able to do in other circumstances.
0: Cooking with, uh, with coach Rod is uh, that's a,
1: that's an outstanding Instagram segment. <laughs> <laughs> and the climate we're in, we're just trying to, we're just trying to figure some things out. Right. <laughs> absolutely.
0: Well, Coach, we really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to join us here on on the Baseball America College Podcast and to take this uh, this trip back down memory lane uh, with the the '92 national championship game.
1: No, oh, I really appreciate you guys doing it. It's a it's a great honor uh, being able to win a national championship, but then be able to come back, you know, 28 years later and and kind of revisit it and be able to talk about it and kind of bring back some of those emotions and that excitement and. Uh, the memories that that we had at that time was really really special, and um, I know with college baseball being put on hold for a little bit, it makes it difficult for you guys. But I just want to thank you for uh, allowing this opportunity to happen and being creative enough to to allow me to be a part of it.
0: All credit goes to Joe. He is uh, he he was the creative uh, or he was the creator of of this uh, this series, and I'm enjoying it. I know Joe's enjoying it and and, uh, hopefully all of our listeners and and all of our guests are enjoying it as all as well. So we really, uh, we really appreciate it. And, and uh, you know, we have
1: fun watching these games. I'm sure that's gotta be awesome.
0: Thank you again to Steve Rodriguez for joining us here on the baseball America college podcast. So Joe, we had uh, a thrilling game and, you know, Coach Rodriguez helped walk us through that. Uh, what kind of were, were your impressions of, of the way that of, of the game when you were watching, and, and then of uh, of what what uh, Steve was able to to bring further light to?
2: Yeah, it kind of. As I was watching this game, it it kind of felt like what you assume West Coast baseball is all about. It was well pitched, but it was well pitched in a specific way. And I mentioned this in our notes. We have a little notes document we create with questions for our guests and all that. And one of the little notes I made for a question was that, you know, Pat Ahern, the starter for Pepperdine, throws a really good game, but he wasn't really striking folks out. You know, he wasn't throwing hard. He wasn't, you know, wasn't flashing big time stuff in any way, but his numbers were really good that year and he continued it with his performance there and you know it was on the on the Fullerton side i mean they get they just get one inning out of their out of their starter nulti and you know they go to the bullpen right after that and their guys did a really good job kind of in the same way so it it wasn't the type of pitching performance where you're going to come away just blown away by what you saw but it was you know it got the job done and it reminded me a lot of kind of what we saw with Ted Silva when we talked about his performance for 95 Fullerton in our first episode in this series where you know, and his was a little different in that he got hit around early in that game, but his successful innings were kind of similar to what we saw from Ahern, where it was um, a lot of ground balls. And, you know, Coach Rod mentioned Ahern throwing a lot of strikes. And actually in this game, at one point they show a graphic and he threw 95 pitches, 50 strikes, 45 balls. But I don't remember, and I'm not looking at a stat line here, but I don't remember him walking a lot of guys, if any, you know. So he was clearly just doing a good job of Working the ball in and out and up and down and, and enticing Fullerton to to into weak contact and I would really have to go through another watch and, and examine to, to to really think about well is, is Fullerton a little over aggressive here are they pressing a little bit I didn't get that sense during the game but certainly you could see that given that uh, given the way Ahern was was performing and the thing that I came away with when Coach Rod was talking and, and he alluded to it a little bit but you just got the feeling. In, in watching this game and hearing the way this team has talked about that it that it is a special group i mean it, for, from a big picture perspective i think it's special because it's an underdog national champion now pepperdine is an underdog national champion in 92 in the same way that coastal was in 16 in that it's a program from outside of the traditional power structure but at the same time a program that's really successful but still an underdog national champion and so i think that's part of it but it's also just that this was a really special group. I mean, this is a talented group, even for Pepperdine at the time, had a lot of guys drafted, a lot of guys that were pro prospects, a lot of guys that weren't sure. Um, But you you get the feeling it's it's a close knit group. It's it's a group that's still involved in baseball. I mean, to have two sitting head coaches on the same team is, is pretty special. I'm sure there are plenty of other examples, but this one really stands out. And I think that's part of the reason why this team continues to live on in, in college baseball lore for sure. So, um, I enjoyed watching it from, for getting to see guys like Coach Rod and, and Coach Waz, um, just to kind of uh, compare that to the, the the guys that I know now in, in coaching, and I, um, you know, I enjoyed it too, just because it is so much of that. Like we talked about in the last episode, leading up to this, it is so much just a trend. Uh, I'm losing my words here, but it is such a transformational championship for a Pepperdine program that had been on the cusp for a while and, and finally got over the hump.
0: So I, uh, I think that's all right, you know, the, the, just the way that they were perceived at the time. And, you know, I, I, I wonder what it must have been like to have these two programs that are so kind of far aflunt. From traditional college athletics powers to be playing for the national title. You know, it's one thing when Fresno State plays Georgia or when Coastal, uh, you know, plays against Arizona. It seems like it's quite another when Fullerton plays against Pepperdine. And, you know, if that happened today, you know, what would that be like? How much would that be decried um, in terms of ratings? Would that be bad for ratings? I don't know. These these are all interesting things that you didn't have to worry about in 1992. Um, could, you could focus more on the matchup. And I, I just think that's cool that that happened. I know they, um, I don't know how much they got into it on the broadcast or if it was something I read, but just talking about how, how good it was for California. I guess it was, Augie was saying, you know, they beat Miami in, in Ron Fraser's last game to advance to the finals. And, you know, they're, they're talking about, Augie was talking about how he kind of wished they could have just given it to Miami to let Ron Frazier go at it one more time, but that this would be really cool for uh, California baseball. And it's, I'm sure that must've been, you know, to have, you know, these two SoCal teams, a lot of the players knowing each other and, you know, them, it not include USC or, or UCLA, uh, you know, that it's, a, it's, it's a very different thing than, than what you normally see in a championship event. So from that aspect, I, I think it was pretty interesting. I also found it very interesting just to kind of compare how different the game was, uh, then to, to now and not in a lot of the obvious ways we've talked about already, but like, this game opens with Mark Wasikowski trucking a catcher to end the first inning and getting tagged out Um, in a controversial call. He may have touched home plate on his way from getting flipped over the catcher. And, you know, they're talking about, you know, Greg Gumbel and Jim Cotter talking about how the, oh, the catcher has the right to be there. The ball's like almost there. Well, the ball wasn't actually there yet. So he's blocking the plate without the ball, which pretty soon would be outlawed. And then of course, later, you know, now you can't run into the catcher regardless. And if the catcher's in your way, like you have to work around that and like to trust that the right call will be made. But like that play, uh, you don't see that anymore in college baseball.
2: Yeah, not at all. I actually had the same had the same thought there that that was a way. And we we've talked about a lot of ways in which the game is is different, especially at the college level now versus then. And that's one way we we hadn't touched on. It's, this World Series actually, I hadn't realized this at the time, I think, but um, since then I've learned that this particular World Series was transitional in a different way because I believe the 92 College World Series is the last one we have that does not include an SEC
0: team. That is uh, what Wikipedia told me.
2: Okay, so yeah, I mean, so in that way, I mean, if, if you really want to talk like macro topics and how this this College World Series, series in this period of time more generally is kind of the end of an era and ushers in a new era. And, and I think largely we have LSU to thank for that, you know, because this was really LSU under Skip Bertman really getting rolling and getting going um, for, for winning national titles in the way that they were. So that I think ushers in a new era as much as as anything else. But but certainly you can see kind of the, the winds of college baseball shifting a little bit there uh, with the SEC becoming what they are. And, and you have had this conversation before you, you talked about, it's you know these are two schools that uh, Fullerton I believe had either just cut football or would soon thereafter cut football and Pepperdine didn't have it at all at that point and so that's unique and and you and I have had this conversation actually we've we've kind of expanded it talk about a program like Rice that just kind of rose up out of from the ashes essentially if that kind of thing is even possible now and we don't that's a topic for another day and, and you and I have talked about a million different ideas around that topic but um, I think that's another way uh, – this is another example of a thing that maybe couldn't happen in today's college baseball in the same way these two programs that just are, in the grand scheme of things, in the in the big athletics – college athletic scheme of things, smaller programs, smaller schools. And Coach Rod talked about that in the, in the interview. You, you just wonder if this kind of thing, whatever the 2020, 2021 version of this is, if that's even really something that's possible today in college baseball, and I don't
0: know. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's hard to imagine, that. that's for sure. It's hard to imagine, you know, I mean, we see Big West teams get to Omaha. We haven't seen them win a whole lot of games recently. Um, so it's not hard to imagine Fullerton getting back to the stage or a UCSB or, or Long Beach. Um, I couldn't tell you the last time a West Coast Conference school made it. Uh, it's It's been a long time. It's not to say it couldn't happen, but to see those two things happening together, uh, you know, and it, it, it doesn't mean that it has to be, uh, you know, a West Coast Conference in a big West school. You know, if you got, uh, a, you know, a Big East school without football, but I mean, even the Big East is different because you know these are big brands in the Big East. That's a that's a major conference in, in a lot of respects in 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 basketball at least. Um, you know, maybe not so in in, in baseball, but. Yeah, I mean, to to get that kind of thing happening, it, it's it's hard to imagine. And, I mean, it's not like it was happening all the time back then either, but obviously it did happen. And, and you know, you had Phil Nevin, the best player in the country, playing for Fullerton. Uh, Steve Rodriguez was a first-round pick himself playing for Pepperdine. And uh, there were other very talented players on the field that day. And you just generally don't see that kind of talent distribution uh, away from the major uh, power structure in 2020 so that is uh that is definitely something to think about another thing that we've left behind is that kevin costner sent a fax to fullerton the night before the 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 championship game to uh to to will them on or to congratulate them for um, uh, making it that far, whatever the facts was, but uh, you know, I apologize for for not writing down what he said. I was a little stunned by a that he sent a fax, and then b that Fullerton is wearing a patch with Kevin Costner's initials on it in this season. I they did not explain that well enough.
2: Yeah, I guess I hadn't noticed the patch. Maybe I noticed it and didn't didn't make the connection there, but uh, yeah, maybe he had made a donation of some sort. I mean, maybe that's what they, he, I don't know, but I'd kind of forgotten that Kevin Costner is a Fullerton baseball super fan. I had known that at, at some points cause he, he would, and I remember this, I guess this would have been maybe like the George Horton days at Fullerton. Maybe it was Dave's years at Fullerton, but, but I do remember seeing him at, at like super regional games at Fullerton. Um, they would, the ESPN cameras would cut and there's Kevin Costner at the, the Fullerton baseball game. So he he is very much a, a fan. And I, maybe it started when Augie was there because you know, Augie's a kind of a magnetic personality that it kind of brings people in. And so that probably is where it started a little bit. But then, you know, once he was in, he was in. And so um, he, he was definitely, it wasn't just a one-time deal for Kevin Costner. He's a guy who's been around that program quite a bit and has, has stuck with it. So um, he, he, he supported the program in years in which they were not wearing a patch with his initials on it.
0: <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the full story of that is one that's escaping me right now a little bit. Um, but I know it's in Augie's book. Uh, which means it's out there in in other formats. Uh, so if you if you're curious, you can do a little googling and and, and figure that out. It's um, he went there obviously, and at some point he met Augie, and a friendship was formed. And um, Kevin Costner loves baseball, of course. So it it all came about pretty organically and naturally. But um, it was uh, that was that was an interesting uh, part of the telecast. I also. You know, we we hear a lot of times fans complaining that a uh, a broadcast is slanted one way or another. But like, I I watched a lot of this thinking like, are they going to talk about Pepperdine ever? Like, when is Andy Lopez's like uh, pre like little video hit going to come up? Like, we've had like three from Augie, and you know, for all I know, Andy Lopez didn't want to do it. But uh, it it was interesting just how much how famous Fullerton was at the time, how famous Augie was at the time and how, you know, Pepperdine is like very much in an underdog and, um, you know, status. And, and, you know, it's, it was deserved, you know, they were, they were just a three seed in the West regional, I guess. And, um, you know, they certainly didn't have the national titles that that Fullerton did. And uh, it, it was, it was interesting that, that, you know, even in 92, you know, that's, multiple Fullerton national titles ago they had um, you know they still were already you know this this big powerhouse at least in relative to Pepperdine.
2: Yeah it makes you wonder like you and I have been at the CWS media day which is like the day before everything starts and when they're like pulling players up to do their little pre-recorded hits and you know on those backdrops to get run on the big screen and I so that gets kind of all that stuff kind of gets taken care of then, and I just wonder if that was as much a function of anything else. And I think this kind of hammers home the point of Pepperdine is even in that world in in 1992 being an underdog that you just wonder if CBS or whoever was producing those pre-recorded pieces was just kind of like, well, we we'll, you know we'll get maybe you know they probably did something with with Miami, you know, for, for Frazier and then, Oh, we'll do something with Augie because we know Augie and he's been here. And, you know, those are, you know, two of the favorites here. And then that's, maybe that was all they did. And maybe that was all they anticipated meeting or I don't know, but you could definitely see it being a, just a matter of limited time and resources, especially back then at the college world series. And so they, they just kind of grabbed the, the folks they knew were good quotes and would be most likely go deep in the tournament. And, and that's how that ends up being the case. But, but obviously we'll, we'll, we'll never
0: know yeah I mean I I wonder if they even did as much stuff like that back then or if it was just yeah, a function not. of like uh you know Pepperdine played the early game the day before and you know then like Andy Lopez got busy doing other stuff you know who knows but it was it was interesting just to see how much <laughs> there was about the Fullerton stuff and how little there was coming out from from the other end and um yeah it it was it was distinct, at least in, in, in my eyes.
2: It's interesting, too. Remember how um, – it may have been when we were talking about the 95 game, but, you know, we kind of had that, that brief discussion about was the CWS champion national title game a bigger deal back in the CBS days? And we kind of landed on, well, like, yes and no, and here's why. But this – so this is 92, so a few years before that, and it was kind of jarring to me that, you know, Steve Rodriguez catches the pop-up, Pepperdine celebrates, the commercial, they come back, they interview – Andy Lopez, Steve Rodriguez, and Eric Ekdahl after the game, holding, you know, uh, the championship t-shirts. And then they go to commercial, and I kind of expected them to come back to do, like, you know, just one more. I didn't expect, like, a 30-minute postgame show, but I expected them to come back for one more, like, a couple of sweeping crowd shots, a shot of the dog pile, like maybe some analysis from the booth by Jim Cott and Gumble. But, nope, they went straight to the LPGA tournament they were covering. day so it was just very jarring that oh okay so yeah maybe this was a little bit of a big deal to be on CBS but certainly that's something you really can't imagine today now granted the internet and being able to do post-game shows that are streamed versus on actual broadcast networks has changed the game a little bit there but it was just kind of jarring to me that in 1992 you know that that the game wraps up they do one quick interview and then that's it folks for the college baseball national championship and how far we've come
0: and also um Struck me that like Andy Lopez is doing his best Nick Saban. Like, did he smile in his post-game interview? Like, <laughs> here he is, having won the national championship. And uh, yeah, it was a it was a staid bunch uh, there, it, you know, or, or a reserved bunch, I should say, uh, having having won the national championship. One more thing I wanted to touch on here is that uh, the Ahern comps to Oral Hirschheiser, like exist everywhere if you read anything or watch any of this game uh, about the '92. Pepperdine team that they are all over the place and uh Joe as someone who really has no connection to where Oral, Oral Hershiser ever pitched um what do you make of that because it's like you will still hear it out there um Griffin Cannon got slapped with that a lot I mean it helps that Griffin Cannon's wearing his number but like that's a thing that you know Oral Hershiser is kind of this in some ways, mythic slash cult heroes still in Los Angeles. and you know, I grew up in Cleveland. Oral Hersheizer finished his career there and like, I don't know, like no one no one Cleveland really thought that much. like it was cool that he was there, I guess, but I th- I feel like people were more excited about Dennis Martinez coming than they were about oral. Maybe that's just me misremembering. but uh you know, it, it it's been interesting as as I've seen more of this over the years, just how much Oral Hersheizer means to a certain kind of pitcher out in that area, especially.
2: Yeah, I think it's probably because I'm with you. I don't remember him as being the pitcher that he really was, but just a quick uh, a quick look at, like, his, his baseball reference page will reveal, you know, he, obviously he won a Cy Young in 1988, but he also came in third in the Cy Young in 85, fourth in the Cy Young in 87, and fourth in the Cy Young in 89. And so – I mean, there really was a run where he was as good as anybody in, in in baseball on the mound at least. And so I think that's probably just a matter of you and I having not really obviously had literally not been around for most of that. And then just the fact that that he is kind of, I think, more of a cult hero out in L.A. and for the hardcore Dodger fans and West Coast baseball fans, more so than an actual big-name star in the grand scheme of, of of baseball at large. I think every city has these. But I'm, not, I'm like you, I'm not really sure. Maybe it's – by comparing him to Oral Hershizer, I, I think now with Ahern, like the motion was definitely – it was almost like a dead ringer in terms of his actual mechanics. But I think more largely the comps to Oral Hershiser are maybe just for a specific type of pitcher that
0: – Yeah, the bulldog is definitely the right. bulldog location over velocity like it, that that's a big part of it for sure
2: right and and maybe even to some degree just the the, the way that the, the pitcher carries himself i think can complain can to that so i i almost think i don't know if this makes any sense but pitchers that don't fit that fit a very narrow group of characteristics that don't obviously fit in some other box end up getting the oral herschizer comp and maybe it's just really convenient out in la to do that So I don't know. I think it's a really good question. It's a good observation. I hadn't really thought much of it, although I did notice how often it was uh, mentioned that he was an oral look lookalike because I I tooted a Google search for Pat Ahern and it was everywhere. So, uh, you know, I think it was really interesting observation. I hadn't given it much of a second thought, to be
0: honest. All right. One more. I loved, and then we can talk about Steve Rodriguez and cocaine, Uh, but I love that like he took their, you know, when they're back out, that they had their regional at UCLA last year. They practice at Pepperdine and his own players at, at Baylor are like, why did you leave the ocean? But the ocean's right there. Like, I love that. <laughs> the, yeah. The, the, st- that, that's just how good Malibu is.
2: It is. And I can, I can tell you firsthand now, having been there uh, a little more than a month ago now, it was uh, pretty incredible, honestly. I mean, the drive, the drive up there from LA is is great. Um, and so there's, there's a lot going for it, And I think, I mean, let's, let's be honest. When I think to a, to a neutral observer who kind of casually follows college baseball and you know Pepperdine, and, and thanks in large part to this 92 national championship, by the way, you know Pepperdine as a name in college baseball. And Baylor is also a name in college baseball. Like, let's, let, you know, let's be clear about that. But you know, so I, I think it's easy to look at what Pepperdine has done and what Baylor has done, and Baylor hasn't won a national title, so I guess Pepperdine has that over them. And then you see Malibu, and then you see Waco, Texas, which um, is not Malibu. I mean, I'm a Texan, so you know, I'm, I'm inclined to to give the benefit of the doubt to places in Texas, but Waco is not Malibu. And so, I think there were a lot of people when he when he moved to Baylor that kind of had a similar thought process, like, really, you're gonna you're gonna give up what you've got out there on the West Coast and 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 come to and come to Waco. And, and by the way, you're going to follow the guy who really made Baylor into what they are and Steve Smith. And that's always kind of a hard thing to, hard thing to do. So, but I think that just goes back to the fact, I think we, we brought this up in a different way in the last episode, but um, you know, different coaches value different things. And sometimes there are reasons for making a move that aren't obvious on the surface and and Pepperdine has its limitations. I mean, stadium still doesn't have lights and you're in the West coast conference versus big 12 and. So that there's an inequity there, and there are just you know a lot of uh, you know a lot of things that aren't maybe on the surface that, that would seem like reasons to. Uh, there are a lot of reasons it would seem like you'd want to stay out in, in some place like Malibu. That, that when you dig a little bit deeper, um, you know, that, that it stacks up in favor of, of Baylor. So it was just one of those things where I think there were a lot of head head scratches. I think it's similar when when our friend Dave went from uh, you know out on the west coast at Fullerton to Tennessee. You know, I think there were a lot of similar questions being asked about why that move would, would be made, but it was another one where um, there were some things in those major conferences, there are just some things that can't be provided um, at locations, even good programs in conferences that just aren't as big. And so we've kind of backed our way into circling around the conversation we were just having about how hard it is to be a team in one of those conferences and do what Fullerton and Pepperdine
0: have done. Absolutely. Um, I certainly was among those that were looking at the Pepperdine to Baylor move and trying to like, see if there were connections that could be drawn, but it has, uh, it has worked out very well for, for coach Rodriguez and for the bears. Um, I do want to touch on the cooking element of, of this whole thing. Uh, I love the idea that he is most upset about not winning or that, that he is very upset about not winning the the first Cook off uh, at the ESPN Zone. Pour one out for the ESPN Zone. I'm sure that doesn't exist anymore. Um, and then that he is like willing to walk his players through making his signature gumbo. I mean, I, I love all of all parts of that.
2: Yeah, I was really. You know, you never know what you're going to get when you ask a question like that. I was really uh, pleased by his response. It was, you know, he he had a he had a great answer prepared. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's he made a larger point there that I think is good, which is cooking as a skill, and I think that's something that you know he learned when he's off in pro ball. But I think coaches talk a lot about getting their players prepared for for pro baseball. In a lot of ways, they talk about the not just the on field stuff, but off field stuff like managing money and and things like that but I think cooking is one thing that might get overlooked in a lot of cases. So I think it's actually really great that he kind of impresses that upon his players that, you know, you're going to have time on your hands in pro ball or just in life. I mean, you get into your first job and you're on your own really for the first time and you've got your own money to spend and how do you spend it? And how do you, you know, kind of feed yourself? And that's something they don't really teach you uh, typically. And so I, I think that's actually really smart by coach Rod to, to make that part of, you know, what he's trying to teach his players and, Um, I I can also see that, you know, in pro baseball, his point about you don't just want to spend time sitting around. And so he took it upon himself to pick up some hobbies along the way. And I can imagine I'm kind of a fidgety person by nature. I think had I been in his shoes, I probably would have been doing something similar. All
0: right. So that was the 1992 College World Series championship game. That was our interview with Steve Rodriguez. We covered a lot of ground from – his playing days of Pepperdine to his cooking days, also a Pepperdine and (laughs) everything in between. So we really want to thank uh, coach Rodriguez for, for coming on the podcast. Uh, Joe, it is, uh, it is time for us to select a game for next week's podcast. So why don't you tell the listeners what we're, what we're going to be watching if they want to uh, watch the game before next Friday's podcast.
2: Yeah, we're going to go all the way back to 2011. Uh, excited to watch a game from this era because this is an era we haven't really touched on yet. We've we've done some very recent games, I guess specifically the uh, Oxford Regional game between Tennessee Tech and Ole Miss, and and we've primarily done older games. And so this will be kind of nice to this will be kind of nice to go to an era of game that we haven't really done, which is almost smack right in the in the middle of that. Um, we are going to be doing the 2011 College World Series game between South Carolina and Virginia. This was the second of the two games they played in that College World Series. Uh, this one goes into extras, so uh, buckle up and get comfortable. It is a lengthy one. Uh, but it's the. Uh, this is obviously uh, in the midst of South Carolina's incredible run uh, through the postseason led by you know Michael Roth and then Matt Price in the back of the bullpen. Jackie Bradley Jr. was a part of those teams. Uh, just a really – a Fun time in South Carolina baseball history. A really successful time, obviously in South Carolina baseball history. So I'm looking forward to going back and kind of revisiting those teams that I was uh, very much aware of. I was following along. So these are this is a game I I, I have seen for sure. Um, I have not rewatched though, so it'll be a fun rewatch for me uh, of a game. Believe it or not, almost almost 10 years ago. This is another game, by the way. The recording is kind of wonky, so just bear with it. Um, again, watchable just like the '92 game. But uh, looking forward to it. I think these are um this era of college baseball was was an interesting one because they had just they just changed the to the bb core everyone was kind of getting used to that and it was it was interesting that south carolina was just able to roll with that and they just kept on winning and that dynasty continued which a lot of other programs would not have been able to do that it just shows you how they were really built to win under any circumstances so uh, south carolina fans will enjoy this rewatch. i think just general college baseball fans Will as well, just realizing how great that run of South Carolina baseball was.
0: Absolutely, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to it. This actually uh, is the year that I was an intern at Baseball America, so uh, you know, fun little personal aside there. And yeah, it's a uh, it's an exciting game. From what I remember, I uh, I, I don't remember the the entirety of it. Uh, Full disclosure, Joe and I just looked at the box score and we both were like, wait, why did that happen? Uh, so we're gonna, we, we clearly need the refresher and uh, we're, we're looking forward to getting it. So yeah, check that out. You can watch it on YouTube. And like Joe said, it is linked over at baseballamerica.com. You just have to find his 10 great game, 10 great college baseball games you can watch on YouTube part two. And it is within that piece. So we will be back here. On the Baseball America College Podcast, talking about that next week, uh, we will have a guest. Uh, we do not yet have the guest lined up, so once once we do that, we will uh, we will let you know who it is. Uh, we, we believe again, we know who it is, but it's not it's not fully the deal is not fully fully iced. So we're uh, we'll let you know when we know. We also will be back here on the Baseball America College podcast on Tuesday. We are going to do our News Year show. Again, we are going two times a week throughout the spring. Uh, first episode of the week drops on Tuesdays. It's the News Year show. Second episode of the week drops on Friday. It's our, it's this, it's us re-watching a game, uh, following along in that series. So we'll be back here on Tuesday with our, our News Year show if you want to uh, tune in and uh, catch up on all of the goings on around college baseball. We will, uh, we'll be here uh, in your podcast feed then. Until then you can check out plenty of stuff over at baseballamerica.com. We'll have a new top 25 on Monday uh, as we continue to rank 25 things uh, throughout the, the course of, of the, over the course of the next several months. We are committed to doing that until we have uh, a chance to rank 25 teams again next preseason. We're very much looking forward to that, but we're also enjoying these, uh, you know, diving back into to the history books a little bit or whatever it is. This week's was the 25 best golden spikes seasons uh, of all time. And that was a, uh, that was a fun one. So hopefully you, uh, you check that out if you have already. So we have plenty of content over there on the website to to keep you guys busy hopefully in uh in this baseball spring we are we're doing our best and we appreciate everyone who is uh who is clicking uh, on the links and, and reading and, and listening and, and subscribing to the podcast and, and doing all of those good things you can follow us on twitter i am at ted cahill joe is at Healy ba we will be back here like i mentioned next week on the baseball america podcast Until then, I want to thank you guys for listening. Thanks again to Steve Rodriguez for joining us here today. Thanks to Joe. I've been Teddy Cahill. We'll talk to you next week.